Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, Sandman number four, A Hope in Hell, with a cover date of April 1989. Art is again by Sam Keith and Mike Drigenberg. Again, colors by Daniel Vozo, Todd Klein doing letters, and Art Young and Karen Berger as the editorial crew. This time, uh, we get a lot more information about Dream, and uh, another name drop of another member of his family is added to uh, our growing understanding of what the Sandman mythos is all about. Yeah, this issue is really going to expand, I think almost really blow up the Sandman mythos. And after our nice, I guess, uh, reprieve, a sort of detour into uh, drug addiction, we are now back to an intense amount of literary allusions in this issue, but also back to some more comics history. So we are going to have, uh, I think, you know, a lot of, of work to do in this episode, but I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. And I think also we have a return to it being a Sandman comic, back to our point of view character being Sandman himself and being back in his head, which is not necessarily a place we all want to be when certain things happen in this issue. No, this does not actually seem like a, a good place to, to be. And even as this issue starts, just on the very first page, we are we are deep in, I guess, what would best be described as ennui uh, of of dream here. We we begin, this issue begins in a, in a black void on the nightward shores of dream which is an absolutely gorgeous phrase there and dream is standing on a pier in this blackness and he's sifting his newly recovered dream sand through his fingers and he's he's just musing about the endlessness of that sand but that prompts him then to think about his own nature and also the nature of the few others of his kind. And here we get the label endless used to describe what type of being dream is, as, as well as the other members of his family. And of course, as you said already, Brent, we are going to get more about this a little bit later in the issue. But even just right here, this is awesome, right? This is a huge part of this uh, Sandman mythos, this endless and we actually had this before, all the way back in the first issue, but we didn't call attention to it because there was so much else going on at the start of this saga. But I'm excited to have this term so early in the story. I, I didn't think that it would show up until later. And it's impressive to see how much of this mythos Gaiman already had in mind at this point. Yeah, and I love the imagery of him standing here on this floating dock in a star field. And then as he reaches into his pouch... And some grains of sand falls out and reminds him of Lucifer Morningstar. And the sand themselves form almost a constellation of the image of the fall, which is just a wonderful little bit of art. Yeah, right. You said Lucifer Morningstar, though. That actually doesn't quite exactly appear on the, the page yet. All we really get here is is Morningstar. And we are going to spend a lot of time in this episode talking about the various literary traditions that Gaiman draws on here and adapts in order to create his own version of hell for his speculative world. But I guess we might as well pause here and actually talk about Morningstar, or really maybe Lucifer in general. I think Lucifer's uh, well-known in our pop culture as another name for the devil or, uh, or Satan, a, you know, as someone who was the, the chief angel, but who fell from power and fell literally fell from heaven in order to become the devil, though this is not actually information that you can find in the Bible. Uh, it's actually a pretty late invention in the history of, of Jewish and Christian thought. Uh, we'll talk about that stuff in just a moment. The 
the word Lucifer is just a Latin word that means bringer of light, right? Luca or lux is light and fares just means to, to carry. You can, you can think of the name Christopher for another example of this, where that name literally just means the carrier of Christ. It's someone who's carrying Christ around. Usually we mean that metaphorically. Uh, and this phrase bringer of light shows up in a lot of ancient texts, including the Old Testament book of Isaiah, uh, where it's often paired with the word or phrase morning star, which is what we have here on the on the page. This is all really about the planet Venus, which is often called by ancients in, in cultures all over the world. It's often called the morning star because it frequently appears in the sky just before dawn and is therefore the bringer of the light of the sun, right? The, the bringer of light, the Lucifer. But it is also often used metaphorically, and that's the context where we actually get this in the the book of Isaiah and the the Old Testament of the Bible, where the idea of the morning star having fallen from heaven is employed as really as a, as a as a metaphor about a Babylonian king who's you know being a kind of wicked ruler. Uh, these lines are very cool, and they're they're definitely worth reading. So I'm just going to do that. And these are at uh, Isaiah uh, fourteen twelve through fifteen. The text says. How you are fallen from heaven, O bringer of light, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to Sheol. You are brought down to the depths of the pit. And obviously there's some imagery there that sort of sounds like this story that we know about Lucifer from our, our pop culture. But how we get from these lines that are actually about a very real mortal person to the idea that this is the devil happens much later. It happens in medieval Christianity, uh, really pretty late in medieval Christianity, in fact, though I'm simplifying that a little bit. And basically, by the time people were, you know, 2000 years removed from the current political situation in which these lines were originally written, people had lost sight of the context and looked for other meaning. And then there is also a line uh, in the Gospel of Luke that gets paired up with this. And, and this is Luke ten eighteen, in which Christ says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. And so, you know, if you're a late medieval Christian and you take these two bits of scripture together uh, because of this image of falling from heaven, the morning star then, that is to say Lucifer, uh, becomes equated with Satan. Uh, but I should say that this is really more of a popular belief in the Middle Ages, right? Most theologians would have denied this connection. They would have understood that those lines in Isaiah weren't really about Satan in, in any particular way or the devil in any particular way. But more and more importantly, this idea about the loop about Lucifer, about the devil fall, being an angel in heaven and falling to hell, this idea really spreads in early modernity with the invention of the printing press and the advent of increased literacy and of course you know the Reformation and it really comes to fruition in the English speaking world in the seventeenth century epic poem Paradise Lost by John Milton which is all over this text. Uh, but to bring us back to this text, bring us back to the Sandman here, I, I think it's important to note that uh, Christ says, I watched Satan fall from heaven. And Dream here says the exact same thing, basically, right? He says, I watched him even then as he fell, his face undefeated, his eyes still proud. So there's you know, some equation here in these lines of 
Sandman and Christ, which isn't to say that there couldn't have been a lot of people who were hanging around watching <laughs> Satan fall from heaven, right? Uh, but I think that's an interesting and an intentional parallel that Gaiman is drawing here. Well, and I think it also ties back into the, I mean, the endless as the endless, the term itself. We have no reference to there being a beginning for them particularly here either. That these abstract entities perhaps um, have existed throughout time, forward and back. So uh, they're truly endless in that sense and a witness to all of the events and goings on and also potentially players for events that are going on. Right. And we're going to get some hints about that here later in the episode when Dream and Lucifer are actually talking to each other that they really just hints at this, this much bigger stage, much bigger panoply upon which these this small story that we're seeing is really being played out. And I really love that about this issue. So then we get to the splash title page, A Hope in Hell. And we have Dream again standing on his dock with a star field around him. And there's kind of a ripple of a pool almost, or a haze just below where the dock would be in the water. I thought it was very interesting. Um, my mind half expected to see the ferryman, to see uh, Charon here. But instead we have Dream, and I guess he doesn't, he can travel himself between realms. So uh, in reference to... The Annotated Sandman, which was uh, Volume 1, which was edited with an introduction and notes by Leslie S. Klinger, and a forward by Neil Gaiman. In reference to that, Klinger includes, actually, a note here in his annotations that is from Neil Gaiman that he had written to the artists in depicting this issue. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he explains that this entire issue is all about hope. But he does also note that here, the Sandman, quote, the Sandman will be slightly more phased by this than he expects, uh, this tra traveling to hell. In the past, we've only ever seen him with people that he considers essentially his inferiors. He's acting far more as if he's talking to his equals here. He's even slightly scared of them. But he's damned, pun unintentional, if he's going to show it. He's acting like a representative of a foreign country, like a king in his own country visiting a foreign place. Uh, but Neil Gaiman also remarked in his script, This is, on every level that I can get it in, a story about hope. What hope is, how important it is, and how hard hope is to kill. The title's slightly cliched, but not very. Hope you like it. So... We have Dream looking very self-conscious about the decision he's about to make. There seems to be a kind of a weight on his shoulders. His head is bowed, not just because he is looking down into a chasm to perhaps jump slash fall into hell, but also just a lot more burden reflected, I think, in this uh, title page about the task that he has in front of him. Right. And as he jumps, as he's descending down to hell, he says something that's uh, really interesting and really important for the previous issue. And he says that he really didn't have any power over the dreams in Rachel's house, that he bluffed them into going away. And why this matters now is that because even now that he has his pouch back, dreams power is still limited, but he has hope. So you know, he is going into this with much reduced power, this dangerous situation with much reduced power and, and being armed in some sense, equipped in some sense, I guess, with hope as a as a type of weapon or a tool that he can use, which which is going to come back at the end of the issue. And I really appreciate this idea that it reminds us that the end of two issues ago where he had decided to go first to Constantine was intentionally because he figured one human would be an easy person to go interact with. 
And so it reminds us that he was at diminished power and he had made a very conscious choice to go the easy way. It is interesting to me, though, in retrospect, then looking at last issue, that because we never had the Sandman point of view, it was all Constantine's point of view. I didn't really get the terror of what it must have been like for Dream to be bluffing those uh, nightmares in the house. Instead, it was... I was worried a little bit for John Constantine. I was very worried for his former lover, but I was never really worried for Sandman at any point in that issue. Right. And it turns out now that we actually probably should have been. And this was something, of course, that we did ask in our last episode. We had some questions about how that was actually working. So in this case, I'm, I am glad to be back in Dream's point of view so that we get uh, this all narrated to us. We actually understand what he's experiencing in this story. Well, before we move on, we should really pause here, actually, and uh, and talk about the gate of hell, because this gate is awesome. Uh, it does look like any kind of modern gate, I guess, that you might have around your house or, uh, you know, around a school, but it is covered in impaled corpses and severed heads. Uh, and on the door, I, I guess really the gate part of the whole wall, there's a, a naked woman who's hung as if she's uh, being crucified. And the, the whole thing looks like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. And I absolutely love it. And, he, and here, Glenn, the um, the annotated Sandman uh, drew reference to and included a little black and white photo of the Gates of Hell by Rodin, the statue. And it's a terrifying image. And here we have this mass of intertwined bodies. And Neil Gaiman also gave some suggestions to the artists about how to describe the gate. Um, specifically, he asked the artists to compose the gate not out of worked stone, but out of just rock or flesh, but pieces of flesh that would be put together. He wanted the gate itself to largely be left alone and be iron. He wanted the spiked heads that we do see depicted um, to be present, but not over the gate portion, but over the wall throughout. And he wanted uh, just the whole thing to be very disquieting and disgusting, which he asked for the artist kind of throughout is that they stretch their minds to think of the most grotesque imagery that they can find. And I think that Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg did a wonderful job uh, really providing us with a terrifying visage of what the gates of hell might be, um, where you very much feel the suffering of those whose body parts are perhaps making up these structures. Right, because all of these creatures are still alive and clearly are in, in just real agony here, just really in pain. One of the things that really made me think of a Hieronymus Bosch painting rather than the Rodin sculpture, The Gates of Hell here, is the the colors here. The Hieronymus Bosch paintings of you know really like hellish landscapes from the, the late Middle Ages are full of, of really vivid colors. And this gate here is too. There's a lot of green and red and purple all being mixed in together. But uh, in addition to having the annotated Sandman in front of you, you also have a, the the touched up version of the Sandman that was released a few years ago and also older issues of the Sandman. You've just got like a tower, a fortress of books around you. Uh, but in the, the touched up version, these colors have been changed a little bit, haven't they? Yeah, in the Sandman Omnibus Volume 1, there's a touched-up art, and it actually tones down the greens quite a bit from the original collected version that you and I are reading from. And it also tones down the reds, and it's more of a... Um, there's kind of a sickly green in the background, but the foreground, there's a lot more kind of flesh tones, and things are somewhat um, tied together. The sh 
shield eye thing notably stands out of ha- as having um, a little bit more color in the touched up one that it differentiates itself from everything else going on in the gates, but it's a lot more of a fleshy mass and less of a green. Yeah, and you showed it to me before we got recording today. And what really stuck out to me with these sort of muted colors was really that they're they're they are muted and that it they seem to just sort of lack any kind of vivaciousness or, or vividness, which I think actually underscores hope here, right? In that the lack of color, the kind of lack of of differentiations, like just in the landscape, uh, points to a real bleakness and a real kind of hopelessness while you're standing there. I think it actually works better than what was printed in the original comic. But I think we need to actually get into hell. So Dream is going to ring the doorbell of hell, which is actually this weird eye shield thing that you brought up. And Lord Squatterbloat comes out to greet him. Uh, I love this character. He's officially called a rhymer, which is an actual job you can have here in hell. And he rhymes everything he says. And just one example of this is, there's one more at the door, at the gate to damnation. Is it thief, thug, or whore? There's one at the door, and there's room for one more till the end of creation. I just, I love this. I, I wish we actually had more time with these these rhymer characters. I'll also say Squatter Bloat looks real cool, but I'm not really quite sure how to actually describe him. I'm hoping you can help me out with this, Brent. He's got kind of a an axe instead of one arm, and there's a tendrils that are almost kind of Cthulian that... Or you can't really make them out, but off the front of his face, in which it, it looks a lot like some kind of black mass of kind of goo, but also kind of tendrils. Think, um, for those of you who are Doctor Who fans, for the recent new Who's, think uh, the way the Ood's front tentacles might look. Uh, for those of you who are D&D fans, think of the Mind Flayers or Illithids, um, but kind of truncated and kind of bloody mass and just kind of in shadow, but with a deep... Uh, red slit for an eye. We're going to meet another rhymer here in just a minute. But before we get there, we still need to deal with Squatter Bloat. So Dream announces himself, right? He says who he is. But Squatter Bloat notices that Dream does not have his helmet and he does not have his ruby. And so he therefore doubts his claim to be who he says he is. Dream has no patience for this, and he employs violence in order to demonstrate his power. And he he grabs Squatter Bloat by this like weird black tentacle stuff on his face, and basically uses him as a bowling ball. I thought it was sort of incongruously comical, though I didn't dislike it. Yeah, it, it's very. Again, we have these bits where it feels a lot like a Looney Tunes cartoon occasionally, and particularly the early Sandman's. And, and here's another volume of that, uh, or another instance of that. Um, and particularly the sound effect associated with him tossing Squatter Bloat is uh, a chung. And I assume that's implying maybe he's throwing him back into the gong that he original maybe uh, had had gonged on, had, had rang in order to summon Squatter Bloat to the gate. Because otherwise I'm not sure what would be making that particular noise. But uh, uh, yeah, it's Dream having none of this nonsense. Although it's interesting to me, Squatter, Squatter Bloat does clearly seem to recognize Dream and knows that he has normally Helm and Ruby and knows that they're missing. So uh, it's as if uh, the hotline, or perhaps it was in an issue of the Daily Mail, that uh, announced that the Dream King is without these artifices of his power, these um, badges of his office. And so uh, the creatures of hell are going to have good fun making fun of him for not having these things anymore. 
Yes, that was my sense exactly as well. Squatter Bullet seems to know precisely what he's doing, that he's just egging Dream on. But this whole interaction, and I think in particular the Chung sound, brings us to another demon. This is the Etrigan, whom Dream refers to as Merlin's demon. And so you might then think that Etrigan is a character in Middle English Arthurian poetry. But in fact, he is not. He is from comics. And so, Brent, I'm hoping you can put your, your comics historian hat back on here and tell us a little bit about the literary history of Etrigan. So Etrigan um, is a character that I've always kind of enjoyed in small doses, although he occasionally has his own series, which I never particularly find that interesting to read just Etrigan stories. But he's always fun when he shows up in interfaces with Batman or John Constantine or any number of other folks in the DC universe. But he originally was created by Jack Kirby in the early 70s. Um, and so that also very much is the color scheme of the bright hulking things that are very much the way that Jack Kirby would bring things to us. So the other thing about Etrigan in DC continuity, um, as you mentioned, he is referred to as um, Merlin's half-brother. In DC continuity, Merlin is a real person, and his father is a, a demon, and another spawn of his is Etrigan, who then Merlin binds to a mortal called Jason Blood. And if a certain phrase or rhyme scheme is, uh, is used, then Etrigan... Uh, emerge is is transformed back into Jason Blood. It's very much for those who are fans of Lady Hawk. It's kind of that scenario where you can either have Rutger Hauer or someone else. You can't have both at the same time uh, because of the way things are. So Etrigan is somewhat imprisoned by Jason Blood. That is though the right reason why he's Merlin's half brother is that uh, they are both have the same demon father blood running through them. Um, and so um, again, we have Neil Gaiman referencing this historic, you know, 1970s character who ties to the larger mythological pantheon of Arthurian legend, um, and then bringing Sandman into this and knitting this all together. He's always rhymed. Well, there's some, there was one particular writer who didn't care for the rhyming, so he just did away with it at some point, but he, he's kind of, ever since he was first created, the character of Etrigan speaks in rhymes, um, which he does here. Uh, and then Alan Moore in the Swamp Thing comic actually brought forth the idea that rhyming demon is a specific level of demons in hell, in that you need to be a certain rank to rhyme. And so both Squatter Bloat as well as Etrigan apparently had risen to the station of being able to rhyme and to signify or somewhat of their position. So that, that's very interesting. There's this, you know, just your career path is you start out not rhyming, then you have like a period of time where you're rhyming all the time. Uh, interesting career progression. Well, it's, I mean, hell as depicted in many different places, including as we'll talk about later, uh, Dante's um, Inferno it has so much organization to it um, and functions in a very bureaucratic way in which at certain levels you do certain things and at certain times you make sure that you do the form in triplicate. Otherwise, if you don't have enough covers in that TPS report, there is a problem and we're going to have to talk about it. Yes, that's right. It's not clear to me if if hell is a modern bureaucracy or if modern bureaucracies are hell or perhaps perhaps both. Probably more likely both. Well, as as you've said, Brent, we are going to get a a tour of hell basically as as Dream goes to see Lucifer. So uh, we can get on with that here. Etrigan agrees to take Dream to Lucifer's palace at the center of hell, but he hints that things have changed a lot in hell since the last time the Dream was there. Last time Dream visited, we're going to get more about that in just a 
few pages. It's a nice hint here, sort of a narrative device to hint at something that's going to turn out to be really important. Here now, Etrigan takes Dream through the wood of suicides in which the spirits of people who have taken their own lives are manifested as or are, are trapped in trees, but they retain their ability to speak. And, and this is a, a pretty famous image from that medieval epic poem that you just brought up, Brent, The Divine Comedy by Dante. Uh, it's from the first part, The Inferno, which is the one I guess that most of us have read in high school, uh, and is a journey through hell, very much like the one that Dream himself is on right now. And what's really interesting here in this story is that Dream comments that when he last visited this wood, uh, it was really just a small grove of trees. Uh, in fact, he says tiny, but now it is a sprawling forest. And, and we get the art to back that up here. And I, I don't know about you, Brent, but I sort of took this comment here, this change as um, really kind of a, a commentary on suicide as a particular symptom of modernity and the, the mental health problems that we've created for ourselves by inventing a, a high-tech capitalist civilization. But I wonder if you read it differently. I think that it is an interesting take on, you know, the increase of suicides because of problems of modernity, perhaps. It may also, I mean, in our contemporary reading and our contemporary discussions of suicide, which I'm not sure is what Neil Gaiman meant in the late 80s, although it probably still was relevant, but maybe just not discussed then, is the ease at which particularly... Um, there's a lot of discussion about, in the United States at least, how uh, the tools are available, um, unfortunately, for those who have mental health problems um, and consider that there's no other way out to um, take their lives uh, with more ease than they perhaps could before. So I don't know if it's a reference to the problems of modernity or if it's the problems of modernity providing the tools for people who had the problems that they've always had to unfortunately be able to end their lives um, far more easily. Right, and it could even just be a simple matter of arithmetic. What has what it may be that what has changed since the last time Dream was here, and we don't know when that was. At least we don't know that yet. It might just simply be that because of modernity, things like uh, better access to uh, quality food and healthcare, that there are more people on the planet. So simply, just a, a you know basic function of of mathematics is that this too. Uh, that as the population of the planet has grown, so too will the population of the wood of suicides. But I, I, I know it jumped out to me. I, I found it really fascinating. And, and the, the art is uh, the image that we get here of these sort of hills, I guess, that are covered with these uh, trees of, of the souls of people who have taken their own lives uh, is really, really haunting and, and re really quite, uh, quite sad. It's a very off-putting thing in a very different way from the Gates of Hell. The Gates of Hell gave us this torturous imagery. This is painful and torturous to look at for entirely different ways. I was somewhat confused by one of the panels here. As they're walking and they're discussing the changes, there's a snap of a branch and then the tree speaks. And this is, I believe, a reference to Dante's Inferno makes reference to the fact that a tortured soul begins to talk if um, a branch is broken off and so someone needs to or something needs to actively have done that the sandman walked by he's the nearest to the snapping noise but i don't see evidence that 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 sandman is reaching out a hand and breaking it so i'm wondering if just occasionally branches break or if some other force had the breakage occur as he walked by to um, relate kind of the the tragedy of these particular this particular tree um, versus there being the inaction. 
Yeah, I guess if we're supposed to understand that just, you know, when you're walking through the woods that you snap twigs off of trees when they're when they're covering the path because it's just difficult to navigate through them all. We can't keep our eyes on all of them. But there is just just two images later. They're on like this massively wide path where that wouldn't need to be the case. But I think that is what we're supposed to understand here uh in the in the image. But that's a that's a really great catch uh that there's actually something that has to be done in order to get the tree to talk. And and the the soul that's trapped in this tree isn't really talking to them as they go by. It seems to be uh, just almost talking to itself, uh, narrating the, the the story of how this person came to take her or, or his own life, um, which is, just, is really lonely. And I, there's just so many ways to read this particular thing, because if, if it's incidental to, for Sandman to walk and then accidentally he breaks the branch, then is it showing his callousness? Or if he, if the, if the grove wants the ability to speak and if being stuck in the form of a tree and not being able to communicate its sorrow, but be stuck on a plane, you know, perhaps he either intentionally or unintentionally provided some minor amount of relief. I'm not sure that there's particularly relief in hell though. So uh, it may not matter, but uh, there's a lot of different ways. I think you can read what's going on in this panel and what you're supposed to interpret about our main character um, of Sandman and his view of mortals at this point. Well, and just on the very next page, we are actually going to learn quite a bit more about the character of Dream and how he relates to, how he interacts with mortals, and and really just how he interacts with the world in general. Next up on our tour of hell is a prison that's been hewn out of a cliff wall in which individuals are entombed. And and one of these imprisoned souls knows Dream. She she knows him. It's a, a woman named Nada, and she calls him Kaikul. And she reminds Dream that he ordered her confined here, and therefore his forgiveness can free her from this prison. And she asks, don't you love me? And Dream says that it has been 10,000 years, but he does still love her. He just hasn't forgiven her yet. And and this is something that we were asking about even last time, right? This question of, has Dream always been so callous and so unempathetic towards other people? And it looks here, at least on this panel, that uh, the answer might be yes. Yeah, there's this is a very disturbing thing, I think, that we're left with, and there's no answers to come in this particular issue um, as to what is it that Nada did that so offended Dream that he had her – has her basically still imprisoned in hell, that he can release her at any time. But he chooses not to at this point, and yet he says he loves her, which is – it's just very disturbing and makes us really not necessarily want to – root for this character which is interesting as he's journeying into hell um that we're finding him to be a very compromised person while we're surrounded by so many other literal demons um and devils yeah in some ways he actually seems like he might be the worst person that we meet in this issue even though we are on our way to meet the very prince of hell before we leave this page behind though Brent, i have one more question for you. This this information that we have here on the page uh, that Nada is from Africa of 10,000 years ago, uh, this indicates to me that, that Kaikul is an African name, but I don't know anything about the ancient world outside of the Mediterranean. So I've not encountered this name before. And I was wondering if uh, 
Klinger and the annotated Sandman or you from your personal knowledge, you know, have any information about whether this is a real name from an African language or even just words from a real African language, or if this is something that Gaiman has made up. It appears it might just be something that Gaiman has made up. I haven't encountered before and Klinger references the different visage Dream takes on in this picture from Neil Gaiman suggesting to the artist that he look different. What's interesting here too in the art, which Neil Gaiman did specifically ask for as Klinger notes, Dream appears different depending on who he's interfacing with. In the uh, color adjusted version that presented in that I, as I'm seeing in the omnibus, not only uh, does he kind of have still the high cheekbones, but uh, larger lips, shorter cropped hair, and slightly different eyes? But his skin color is is darker and almost matches Nada's skin color on the page, as opposed to being the pale view that it it, it looks to be um, in the original version. And so this idea that whoever is interfacing with dream, then that's how he looks to them. It, it is interesting to see that in addition to having multiple names that he is Kaikul, the dream Lord, he looks different depending on who he's interfacing with. Klinger notes, uh, Neil Gaiman noting that it, this is intentional to bring out the idea of this being an anthropomorphized idea or concept of, of a thing. Um, rather than um, a specific defined person the way that you are or I are. Yeah, right. And, and that goes back even to the that notion of religious syncretism that we talked about in issue two, where cultures will recognize that there is a God of X. We have a God of X, you have a God of X, but we depict them differently for different for different reasons and and that is something that i think gaiman really loves about the the concept of of gods that personify attributes or ideas is that he can make them we as people can just make them look like what we want while they retain the same uh, abstract qualities abstract characteristics and i really love that he does this i mean for me you know reading this as a teenager this was one of my first introductions to that idea and it really changed the way that i perceived the world and thought about the world and i, I love that he does it yeah no i think it's it's really well done um both the way neil gaiman sets it up but also the way that the the art kind of represents it to us of a very stark difference um in the way that he appears but done in such a seamless way that we still know who our character is and who's speaking. It helps that Dream's word balloon um, has his distinctive white text on a black background, so he clearly is still the same person. Well, all right. I think we can we can continue on our journey. And at last, we arrive at Dis, the city of hell. And and this too is taken from Dante, though uh, Gaiman has adapted it for his own needs here. Uh, for example, the the wood of suicides is actually within the city of Dis, within the walls of the city of Dis in the Divine Comedy, where here it's clearly outside. And Dante's use of Dis is itself interesting, as Dis is one of two Roman gods of the underworld. The other one is Pluto, who's uh, much more famous. He's the one whom the former planet is named after, and he's the one who is usually equated with the Greek Hades in that religious syncretism of the ancient world. Dis is actually probably the older of the of these two gods, and he is also the, the ruler of the underworld in Virgil's Aeneid, which is the poem that is, in fact, the basis of Dante's own descriptions of hell. And uh, the it is also a text I'll be teaching next semester, which I'm very excited about. Uh, but I'm also very excited about Lucifer's Palace that we see on this page, because this just looks terrifyingly awesome. Yeah, it really does. It's very ominous. 
and there's a lot going on, and I can't even quite make out what some of it is, frankly. But uh, the strange, particularly baby heads with the worms or tubes coming in or out, it's unclear of the mouths in the bottom of the uh, castle are notable. It's also interesting to me, it has the similar outlines to the front part of Dream's Castle that we first saw back in issue two. Uh, it's kind of a similar visage, and I'm wondering, and there's no indications I have from the annotation. Sandman on this, but I'm wondering if uh, it was a thoughts of at least the artists, if not Neil Gaiman, to try to pull together that each uh, realm would have a similar looking kind of shape uh, in a vague sense um, to the entrance to each kingdom's, um, planar kingdom's uh, castles. Right. Well, I, th- I think we can see that too in the in the way that they each have a, a gate that has some something about it that is characteristic of the realm, and then the palace is at the center of the realm, and and yeah, the the palaces do have a similar shape to them, and I think that probably is intentional. We'll see if that is maintained consistently throughout, or if that's just an idea that uh, th- that uh, Keith and Dringenberg had here in this uh, this first volume. But there is, as you said, there's a lot of stuff going on in this palace. The babies' heads are real creepy. Uh, there is also at the very top, there are these uh, minotaur, these sort of male muscular minotaurs, I guess, who are, are you know, they're statues, but they are standing at the very top of the palace. But then in the center of it is what I think is probably the most horrifying thing I've ever looked at, which is uh, some kind of, of humanoid female. Uh, we know she's female because there are a number of breasts sort of sagging off of her. There, there's six breasts, but her her bottom half is turned around. So we're seeing her up, we're seeing the top part of her from what would be the front of a human, but we are seeing the the back part of the bottom of a human, but it isn't actually turned. It's just that's how this creature is put together. And it does not have a, uh, a human head. It does have two eyes and a mouth, but the mouth is is open, you know, to occupy sort of like 90% of the vertical space of the head. And it is just utterly creepy. I would not want to, you know, encounter this in a dark alley or, you know, wake up at night and, and find this in my kitchen. And the, the face, even though it's, it, it's not a human face, as you know, it, but it does almost look to me, there is no indication here that there is any sound coming from this, but it indicates to me something that is screaming because it looks like the, the Minotaur or the Goatmen are kind of pulling the arms almost apart and it looks like it's in suffering and pain. And I'm wondering, and again, there's no sound effects were given on this page, but my mind had somewhat inserted in this kind of a howling noise that could sound like screaming, but could just be the wind going through some kind of a literal hellscape. And, and it's just something that my brain interposed that particular sound because of how evocative the art was. Well, I think that's going to be in my head canon as well, because this creature does look like she's screaming either in agony, like she's a soul who's being tortured, or uh, perhaps in some kind of joy, like this is a, a, a demon whose home this is and who who loves being here in hell. Uh, it, but it is, in either case, it is both terrifying and horrifying. And the, the Minotaur are interesting. Uh, Klinger does note that um, Neil Gaiman explicit, explicitly had directed... Um, in the next couple pages that we're, as we're meeting, um, the morning star in person, um, that the morning star, if the feet are showing should not be, uh, cloven hooved feet. Um, because Neil didn't want the pan representation to be conflated with, 
the idea of the Morning Star. He felt that that was something that had gone on throughout strands of Christianity to try to put down pan cults um, and try to evoke kind of a satanic imagery to them that he didn't want uh, evoked here. Um, so it's interesting to me that the uh, Minotaur or goat men that are here, they're it's unclear what we're dealing with here. Cause to me, when I first saw it, it was very much almost a look like it might be kind of pan representations, but I'm wondering if the artists, um, maybe perhaps tone that down a little bit based on the specific instructions that he had later about how Morningstar appears. Uh, but I, I, I do not know. That's an interesting observation. And I, I think you're right. I think, although I call them Minotaur or bull men, I think you're right that they are more goat-like than, than, than bull-like. And, and maybe that'll come back up a little bit when, when we meet some of the other characters here and learn a little bit more about the political situation. But I think probably before we do that, we should just go inside this palace and meet Lucifer, the fallen angel himself. And uh, he looks awesome too. And he does not have cloven feet, as you say, Brent. Uh, but we should also just say immediately that he is basically David Bowie's twin. Yeah, he very much is. And, and Klinger's annotations actually specifically note that the art um, reference for this, as well as uh, when we get to it for the cover, uh, are actual celebrity shots of David Bowie. Um, and so he very much was the image they were trying to evoke, which I think works in the sense that oftentimes Lucifer is depicted as kind of a somewhat androgynous and B a very beautiful visage. And I think everyone can agree that David Bowie, particularly 70 eighties, David Bowie, very androgynous and just a very beautiful kind of face that is on the one hand calming on the other hand, there's a lot you can tell that's going on behind those eyes and it can be oftentimes fairly unsettling. Right. And here he's also just wearing a, a white suit, which is, I, I have so much envy for people who can pull off the full white suit. Lucifer is really <laughs> rocking it here. But then he has massive wings behind him. And here they look like bat wings, the sort of uh, demonic bat wings that we would expect, you know, a creature of hell to have, not like feathered angel wings. Yeah, and in many of the depictions, um, both in DC continuity as well as um, other uh, <laughs> uh, non-DC continuity, um, depictions of Lucifer describe the idea that perhaps his wings were either torn off or burned off when he fell, um, and that then these bat-like wings um, regrew to take their place now that he is in hell, um, to somewhat signify that and differentiate him from normal uh angelic representations or uh, particularly differentiate from depictions of him before as um, a beautiful angel creature with full feathery wings in, in a way that you traditionally would expect. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think he looks better probably without the full feathery wings. Feathery wings are frankly just a little bit hard to take seriously. I think when you <laughs> encounter them, you know, on the backs of, of of humans, though we we do see this a lot in our pop culture. Lucifer's also got his own special font for his speech. I actually find this font really difficult to read, but it does at least convey to us that Lucifer speaks with a kind of numinous power that the other characters don't, much like Dream himself does. So that's a really great touch here as well. And there's also a lot of reference here. Uh, most of the time when Lucifer speaks throughout this issue, he uses the plural expression for referring to himself. Um, it's not necessarily clear at times whether he's referring to just himself or if he's referring, as we find out later, to the other co-rulers of hell. But uh, it, it, it may appear, though, that 
he has kind of this prestige of a royal sense of the we. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that clearly is a, a royal we that he is he's using here. I mean, he's, you know, he is beautiful. He does look like David Bowie. He's got a great suit on. He's got his own special font. Uh, you know, he he's entitled perhaps to some pretension, I suppose. Well, before we get into the particulars of their conversation, before we really get to the business at hand, we should pause on one thing that Lucifer says while they're exchanging pleasantries, while Dream and Lucifer are just exchanging pleasantries with each other, which is that we learn that destiny, death, and despair are members of Dream's family. Of course, we already knew this about death from the very first issue. So what matters here is that it seems that uh, all of these these people, uh, these other members of the Endless, their names all begin with the letter D. We also learn here that there are more members to the family than just these ones whom Lucifer mentions here. We don't know how many of them yet. Uh, but this is just really exciting, again, because we're getting this so early in the in the series. Yeah, I think it's really great. And I think Destiny might have been mentioned previously uh, as well. So here, Despair is the new one we're adding, which um, it's very appropriate that uh, Lucifer would be very acquainted with Despair, um, uh, given what we've already witnessed um, from the Grove of Suicides and the other uh, poor souls who have found themselves um, in hell. But uh, I think that also the special script used uh, by Lucifer and kind of the gravitas of the scene helps it not seem as ridiculous, perhaps, uh, and a lot easier for us to have swallowed all these years that all of the members of the family have names that start with a D without finding that uh, silly. Right, because of course this only works in English. Uh, we'll probably bring this up again when we get towards the uh, the resolution of this issue as well. Um, you know, I don't know. I always thought it was very cool when we were teenagers. I suppose it does strike me as a little bit silly now, but still, I'm I'm on board with it. Well, I think we can we can get to the business at hand now, which is that Dream explains that he's here for his helmet, which of course, as we know, is now in the possession of a demon, and you know, Dream would like the helmet back, but. This is where Lucifer explains that he doesn't have the authority anymore to just order demons around. And this is where Etrigan's comment about things changing comes to fruition. And Lucifer goes on to explain that the dark, the shadow creature, came forth to challenge heaven. And this resulted in a civil war in hell. And that Lucifer now rules in a coalition with two other demons. And, and these are Azazel and Beelzebub. Uh, I'm going to definitely nerd out about these names and where we encounter them in literature. But before we get to that, I want to just ask you, Brent, about the dark. Lucifer doesn't tell us any more about this shadow creature, but it seems to be, you know, an actual person and not, you know, necessarily someone who's coming out of hell or something like that. But I, I wonder if you have any ideas about what this is. It wasn't entirely clear to me at the time, nor now, exactly what it is. It may be a reference to the events of the Crisis on Infinite Earths that we had discussed before, um, where there was an unknown power that on a cosmic scale reformed the DC continuity, and that it may or may not be connected in some ways even to the uh, character, the Jack Kirby character of Apocalypse. Um, I mean, sorry, Darkseid. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because sometimes Darkseid is referenced as something more than just a big guy who can uh, shoot laser beams out of his eyes um, and punch things real hard. But it's not entirely clear what it is. But there is this idea in DC continuity for um, a while that there is uh, definitely an uneasy alliance going on within Hell. So some of that is that this notion of 
because you have a divided state here in hell, because there's always jockeying for authority and power and creatures or demons and devils are trying to find ways to advance themselves versus advancing the whole that you see that they just aren't as they aren't unified and they it's a lot more chaotic and it's a lot more um, corrupt, but it also makes tasks like dreams harder where he is not here dealing with one ruler to one ruler. He had known that he was going to deal with the morning star. He was apprehensive about how that might go and he, he might fail, but now things have been complicated a lot because even if the morning star is on his side, which it's not clear that the morning star is ever on anyone's side, it's really, um, uh, up for grabs what these other two entities who it's not clear that dream even has ever met them before um might do um or want from him in return for asking for his helmet back right this situation in hell is definitely uh advocating for the the virtues of uh totalitarian dictatorships because at least you know that there's one person in charge who can get everything done you know this the diffuse power systems is uh, just just makes things more complex and complicated than they need to be i think <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's detour here and uh, uh if you'll indulge me to to, to put my nerd hat on here, my historian hat, uh, to talk about Beelzebub and Azazel. Uh, Beelzebub is another well-known figure in pop culture where he's known as the Lord of the Flies. Of course, you know, you, you, another title of another book that we've all read in high school. And, and here he's even drawn as a sort of weird fly person that looks very bizarre, very cool looking. In Christian scripture, Beelzebub is a, a demon. He appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, but he doesn't actually become important until the 16th century when demonology was like this cool new thing that all the smart people were into. Uh, we'll see a lot of uh, that throughout the, the Sandman comics. And Beelzebub achieves full realization really just as a character in Milton's Paradise Lost, where he's the second in command in hell, which is more or less what Gaiman is doing with him here. Azazel is also derived from the Bible, but he's actually a much more recent addition to pop culture as an important demon uh, because the Western Christian tradition has no special place for him at all. He appears in the Old Testament as having something to do with goats, which may be what's going on back in the, the palace, on the outside of the palace here. But he figures most prominently in apocryphal ancient Jewish texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Books of Enoch, where he's blamed for the appearance of sin in the world, much like Satan or Lucifer are in uh, real scripture. But where Azazel really shines, uh, if, if that's, I don't know, the right word for what demons do, uh, is in medieval Islamic demonology. And, and this was a weird but common obsession with medieval Islamic scholars. And this is even really how early modern Europeans got into demonology themselves. It was through the discovery of these texts. Uh, this is something that we see in our own pop culture, in Lovecraft's Necronomicon, for example. And it is going to continue to show up in the Sandman. But much like these demons don't exist at all or barely exist in uh, Jewish and Christian scripture, these demons don't necessarily appear in the Quran either. This is true of Azazel. But there is one medieval Arabic writer in particular who has a great story about Azazel. Uh, and this is the writer Al-Thalabi. In Al-Thalabi, Azazel basically has the exact same story as Lucifer does in the Western tradition. He's a, a fallen angel who was annoyed about the creation of man, and he was cast down for leading a rebellion against God, and now he's a demon. 
And very much like the other two figures, Azazel also appears in Paradise Lost, where he is uh, not Satan's second in command, but he is Satan's standard bearer, right? He's carrying the banners of hell when the army goes on the march. And I don't know, just for fun, I want to read the description of Azazel in uh, in book one of Paradise Lost. Uh, these are our lines 533 to 541. That proud honor claimed Azazel as his right. A cherub tall, who forthwith from the glittering staff unfurled the imperial ensign, which full high advanced, shone like a meteor streaming to the wind with gems and golden luster rich and blazed. Seraphic arms and trophies, all the while sonorous metal blowing martial sounds at which the universal host upsent a shout that tore hell's concave and beyond, frightened the reign of chaos and old night. Uh, there are at least five great names for metal bands in that passage. But what actually interests me about it here is that it's not at all what Azazel looks like on the page. And Azazel doesn't look like a goat either. So uh, one, I'm not sure quite how to describe what Azazel does actually look like on the page. And two, I'm not sure where the idea for this depiction came from. And I'm, I'm hoping you can help help out with both of those things, Brent. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where the artist particularly came from. It reminds me a lot, almost, of a D&D Beholder, um, except for instead of having one big eye, it's got its many eyes, and then I can't figure out what's going on with the top of it, if that's kind of a, a brain or a honeycomb or and with its many mouths. I'm really not sure where the idea came from for this. Yeah, it certainly is a real creepy. I mean, it does look like a Beholder, you're right, in the sense that it is just kind of a, a floating head type of thing. And I guess it looks kind of like a, a floating egg with eyes, mouths, and a pair of horns. Um, but yeah, it's 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 strange. It has nothing to do with, as far as I can tell, any previous literary or artistic interpretations of Azazel, who would actually normally just look more or less like what Lucifer uh, is depicted uh, here uh, on the page. It could just be that the, um, the idea here was that Lucifer you know, more looks, looks, looks like a, looks like David Bowie with bat wings. Um, he's standing on the ground. Um, and Beelzebub is standing and walking on the ceiling. And so to try to make things look as different as possible, you have something that is neither stand, it's not standing on anything that's just kind of floating or hovering, but it's many eyes that seem to be kind of watching everything, which is kind of a terrifying, almost Orwellian kind of idea. And it's many, it's many mouths are ready with all that's rather sharp teeth to kind of rend anything um, side from side, but also it could be talking out of many sides of its mouth. Well, I like the idea that there's there's one with feet on the ground, one with feet on the ceiling, and one that just floats as a way of of just visually emphasizing to us that they've each got their their own spheres of of influence. That this is kind of a almost a, a feudal triumvirate uh, in, in in some sense, and kind of just visually cues us into what the power relationships are. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a pretty great interpretation of what's going on here. Well. This conversation between the four of them, Dream and the Triumvirate of Hell here, uh, ends with the Triumvirate agreeing to summon all two million demons to the vasty plains of Hell so that Dream can figure out which of these demons has his helmet. And we get an awesome two-page spread here of this assembly of demons. I mean, this is just fantastic. In the version, the collective version that you and I are mainly reading from, there's a lot of kind of reds. Um, and pinks to kind of differentiate the background from the foreground. In the uh, recolored version, there's a lot more greens and blues and grays. 
And there's a lot more to kind of even further differentiate this giant mass of creatures, which um, all are, are very hard to determine, like, what the thoughts are here. And I think the artist did a wonderful job here of just um, giving us a lot of kind of grotesque collection of kind of chaotic mass of creatures on a wide open plane. Yeah, that's interesting that the recolorized version of this actually adds vividness where it took it away from the gate itself. And the recolorized version of this makes this actually look a lot more like a Hieronymus Bosch painting than uh, than the Gate of Hell painting does. Uh, that's that's really awesome. And these demons are are just absolutely very cool looking. Uh, there are a lot of them. This this was a lot of work had to go into into this drawing. Well, Jim uses his his dream sand to search for this helmet. It kind of you know goes up in the air and sort of I don't know. It's like using some kind of sonar to find the helmet or something. And uh, we discover that the demon Koronzon, who is a, a duke of hell and one of Beelzebub's subordinates, is the demon who has the helmet. Uh, Koronzon is a very cool name. It's not Neil Gaiman's invention. Uh, it's in fact found in the works of John D. Uh, we're going to get to talk a lot about John D. in the next episode. So here all will really need to say is that uh, John D is one of those early modern demonology dudes who basically invented the occult uh, after getting their hands on some of these medieval Arabic texts. So we'll, we'll deal more with that in the next issue. But the so what matters here is that the, the laws of hell mean that Koronzon doesn't have to give back the helmet. So if Dream wants it, he's going to actually have to challenge this demon for it. And if the two of them fight a duel and Dream loses, then he will have to become a slave in hell for all eternity, right? So the stakes here, they're, you know, they're a little bit high. Uh, and Dream is not confident that he can win, right? We, we saw that at the beginning of the of the issue as well. And I find this really fascinating because Dream didn't respond well to being imprisoned in Roderick's, Roderick Burgess's basement for 80 years. But right now he's willing to risk eternal slavery just to get this helmet back instead of just saying, well, cool, I guess I just won't get my helmet back. I mean, this just seems really risky to me. And I'm surprised that it's a risk that he's taken. Yeah, no, I think it, it's it's very surprising that he's willing to take that risk. But I also think that when we first saw him at the beginning of the issue, he perhaps knew not quite how it would play out, but he had to make the decision that he was willing to accept a huge amount of risk to even go to hell and that, you know, he would – I mean, he's very familiar with rules and order himself, so – he probably expected that some kind of chicanery would go on and he would have to in some way compete. He might actually be happy that he's merely dealing with this Duke of hell um, instead of having to worry about, you know, the morning star or um, Beelzebub or someone else wanting to hold on to it themselves. This somewhat lowers the stakes, but um, I think it's a calculated risk that he perhaps already made before he showed up. Um, not knowing all the information. Also, he's surrounded by all of the demons. And at this point, um, that's a lot of face to lose if you're just like, oh, okay, well, um, yep, good on you. You keep the mask. There's also been reference to how underpowered he feels and that he needs these badges of office, uh, his bag of sand, which he does have back, his ruby, um, and his um, helmet to be restored to what he was. Um, and at this point, it may actually be um, an existential crisis for him to not retrieve these items. Um, and so the stakes, the, the stakes may be so high that he has to accept all of the risks associated with this. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the depiction of 
Tron's on, and he's very much in juxtaposition to the Sandman, where you have the two-page splash of Dream saying, return it to me now, and then you have him smiling and saying that he's broken none of the laws. And then I love the way he phrases this, if you want your precious back, then you must fight me for it, which um, very much to me, and I'm sure to you, Glenn, evoked very Tolkien-esque in terms of referring to it as the precious and also... Dream's obsession with getting the item back being almost like the obsession that those who fall under the One Ring's pull might feel towards it. Right. Well, the the One Ring, the relationship between the One Ring and Sauron is the exact relationship between this helmet and Dream, which is to say that it's a it's an artifact that's been imbued with the power of its own creator as a means of actually enhancing that power. But what it means is that when you don't have that object, your power is actually diminished, which is maybe not the best strategy. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to have ever actually worked out for anyone we encounter in these uh, these fantasy literatures. Uh, but I do think that it does suggest, right, that uh, uh, that this demon is, is pretty pretty well read. Of course, Dream has not had time yet to read The Lord of the Rings. It was penned entirely while he was imprisoned in the Burgess basement, but uh, you know, hopefully he'll have some downtime soon to uh, to catch up, and then we'll come back and, uh, and laugh at this joke. I get the real impression here that he doesn't even care about the helmet, that what he wants wants is really just to make Dream do this, because this is really punching way above his station, right? Dream, you know, as a member of the Endless, right, is just like several rungs higher than a a Duke of Hell is going to be. But because of the rules here, this is one time, probably the only chance that, that Kronzon will ever have to um, be treated like an equal by one of the endless here and he seems to be getting joy out of doing that yeah i think he's really enjoying the spotlight being put on him and and Corin's on because he's the the person who is being challenged here he gets to choose where they are they are going to duel and there are a couple of things going on here one is very cool which is that he he says i choose reality which suggests that he could have chosen something other than reality like maybe the dream realm or hell or fairy or or you know we don't know yet what some of the other realms that he could have chosen were going to be but that's a real cool indicator here that there is uh, sort of something more vast going on in this fictional universe that we haven't seen yet but the other thing that's really interesting about this is that that he sort of moves them to what you know something that resembles a, a nightclub on earth here it's called the the hellfire club which is a you know specific type of uh, risque gentleman's club in the the uk but they are going to compete here in front of the lords and demons of hell who are the assembled audience in this nightclub so as you say he's enjoying the spotlight here he's enjoying that his peers his colleagues are having to devote all of their attention to him which is great this this duel that they're going to do this is a really cool concept uh it's basically an imaginary battle of of who would win in a fight uh, in which they sort of both have to kind of uh pitch to each other um something that they're going to uh, um some kind of creature that they're going to become and Kronzon starts by taking on the guise of a dire wolf uh dream then defeats this by taking on the guise of a mounted hunter and this goes on for a little while and it escalates until dream decides to play a defensive game rather than an offensive game, right? So this is showing us that uh, the demon Kronzon is kind of reckless and just sort of enjoying the game, whereas Dream is really playing to win and uh, really thinking strategically and maybe even dispassionately about it. And so when Kronzon becomes an anthrax virus, uh, Dream becomes a planet. He becomes an ecosystem of which anthrax can be a thriving member. 
Koronzon then decides, well, he can defeat that by becoming a supernova, an, an exploding star that will destroy such a planet. So Dream uses the same maneuver again, but this time he becomes the whole universe that can, you know, include a supernova as part of its just normal operating procedures. And in turn, then, the demon becomes anti-life, the beast of judgment, the dark at the end of everything, the end of universes, gods, worlds of everything. And it seems like, you know, becoming the end of everything should mean that he wins. But Dream has been waiting for exactly this, right? This is the move that he has seen several steps ahead. And now he takes on the guise of the abstract concept of hope. And Koronzon has no move against this, and he falters, he hesitates, he doesn't know what to be, and that hesitation means that he loses the match. And I, I really love this idea that hope is the one thing that cannot be conquered, that even even in like the midst of the worst thing ever, right, the end of the universe, there will still be hope, and that that cannot be extinguished. It's really a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, it really is given that we are in hell um to be confronted with this idea that hope is something that you can fall back to to overcome the idea of anti-life itself and anti-life for those who are fans of dc continuity um the anti-life equation is something that uh that dark side is connected to um and it's something that is used then to want to destroy everything or anything and here we have a big change in the way the anti-life is depicted on page between the collected version you and i read from where it looks like it's a brighter sun where it's yellow but in the recolors version i kind of like it a little bit better because it's kind of a muted kind of darker gray with maybe a little bit of blue or purple hint to it and it looks a lot like actually the color that is used for dark sides the character's kind of rocky skin um, in that. And so it looks a lot different from all of the colors that we've seen before. But I really love this challenge, and I love the way it's depicted almost as if there's drawings that a child would make or even like cave painting type stuff between the the ideas that are being put forward of the wolf versus the snake versus the you know rider with the, the hunter with the spear versus the fly versus the... It, it, it's really great and... and and wonderful to see these ideas being thrust out while being surrounded by all of this other kind of vivid details of the club scene itself. Right. It's, it really is an imaginative game, right? It, it, it takes place in their imaginations and it is asking them to, to think really about the relationships between and among, you know, different types of creatures and different, different, uh, just objects in the universe and different concepts. I mean, it's very cool. And it, it, it reminds me actually quite a bit of, of something else that you and I were obsessed with when we were teenagers, which is the game of questions from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right? That, that, again, just this kind of imaginative way to have a kind of game with someone else that doesn't, you know, need dice or, or, or playing cards or elaborate miniatures or something. Uh, frankly, I think this, uh, this might be something that, uh, that my wife Elizabeth and I will have to do on our next road trip. It reminds me a lot of great improv in that oftentimes the goal in improv is not to get to the punchline like it is in traditional humor. Um, and similarly, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, during the questions game or this, it's kind of the journey and the fun in seeing the imagination of what someone will think of next. And here there's kind of a relief because our protagonist, um, although 
with some of the things we discussed earlier in this issue, we're not sure how much we necessarily want to root for him, but we certainly want to root for him more than we want to do this Duke of Hell. Yeah, that's right. So, so Corinzon, he loses the match. And as a result, uh, he's carried off to be tortured by the personifications of agony and ecstasy. And and Dream gets his helmet back now, and we're, we're really nearing the end of the, the issue. And Dream prepares to leave, but Lucifer now indicates that they don't really have any intention of actually letting Dream leave Hell, uh, because even with this helmet now, he still has no power here in this domain. But Dream asks them to ask themselves what power Hell would have if those imprisoned here were unable to dream of heaven. And much like Corazon is stumped by dream becoming hope at this, they also are, are stumped Lucifer and Beelzebub and Azazel. And so they let dream go. And we see Lucifer just watch uh, as the legions of hell part way to allow dream to walk to the, the border of the, the realm. And as dream walks off into the distance, Lucifer vows to destroy dream someday. And, and I for sure got the sense here, although it's not explicit in the text, I for sure got the sense here that there is some bad blood between these two, between dream and Lucifer that goes way back. It almost feels like dream uh, on the one hand he needs to say perhaps what he says here in order to allow himself free passage out of hell on the other hand he seems to take a little bit of Deloitte, uh, delight and flourish in doing it in such a way that may embarrass um lucifer because lucifer standing in front of everyone you know trying to assert his own power in his own realm to now have a visiting foreign dignitary be able to show him up in such a way and then freely pass through it's very much like the end of lethal weapon with the diplomatic immunity but then not being able to be shot in the head kind of thing <laughs> um it, it leaves lucifer i think with a very bad taste in his mouth and lucifer is very much taking this to be a personal grudge um, is my interpretation of that, as well as he's a little thrown off his game. Um, I don't know how he thought it was going to end, but I think that this was not the case. Perhaps he wanted to have Dream bargain with him, and, and instead Dream gets to leave scot-free. And there's nothing particularly that, that Morningstar got out of any of this exchange, either in terms of his balance with the other members of the Triumvirate. He is not any more powerful. In fact, he might be diminished in Hell, um, or they might all be. Um, and he gets nothing particularly for the realm and whatever cosmic struggle he's referring to earlier where he asked if the um, realm of dream would join in um, and he gets no particular um, compensation for the time that he has spent and the fact that one of his dukes was now embarrassed publicly and is being pulled off by agony and ecstasy to be punished further well, and I really love this whole page here where Dream is walking off because we get, although that's divided in four, there are sort of four action panels here. The figure of Lucifer cuts across all four of those panels. He's kind of just off on his own on the page watching the whole thing, and he's just completely cast in shadow here. And it just gives this sense of of ominousness here and for foreboding really and and maybe even what we might say is foreshadowing right as if this interaction here is going to come back to to matter later like it just there's a real sense of creeping dread in the way that lucifer is drawn on this page and then i also was left wondering because there's no sense as to whether there's amplification or not uh, where they've been standing before when lucifer says one day my brothers one day i shall destroy him 
in my head, in my headcanon here, he is whispering this. Well, I do think he is speaking out loud, but I think he's only actually addressing Azazel and Beelzebub here who are with him up on this this rocky pedestal here on the vasty plains of hell. That was my sense of it. And I absolutely like the idea that he's he's whispering in this kind of menacing way. And and part of him is is having to actively resist the urge to you know rub his hands together. I mean, he's kind of becoming a Bond villain here, I think, where we're sort of watching this, this happen on the page. That was definitely my my sense of it. But there's one more thing I want to do before we get to the epilogue of this of this issue, which is really to to pick at a nit here, uh, because I always think it's fun to interrogate the metaphysics of speculative worlds, and I love to think about language. So here's my question about what we maybe learn on this page: Does dreams purview really include hoping and yearning and wishing? Because up until now, everything that we've seen indicates that dreams domain is really about the images and the sensations that we experience when we sleep, right? Dream in the literal sense of it. And it would seem to me that although in English, we do use the verb to dream as a synonym for hope or wish, that those things would really seem to fall under the category of a desire rather than a dream. So uh, just not just to nitpick, but to ask a, a you know legitimate question here about the metaphysics of this world. Did Dream just bluff the Lords of Hell like he bluffed the dreams in Rachel's house? And I'm not entirely sure. I think that's a really good question, Glenn. And his his domain, his power seems to be extremely extensive if you consider the idea that stories and ideas are part of his domain. And I think we've saw before when he's borrowed things from dr- other dreamers dreams he's been able to take things from like daydreams even um the idea that daydreaming particularly what happened to poor um bustamante when he when dream went away so he no longer could do his daydreams about castles in the clouds those went away from him so daydreams are incorporated in it but the idea that then anything that would be a daydream and therefore related to hope would be in dreams purview would make it quite an expansive purview which I suppose if you're, you know, on parallel with the concept of destiny and the concept of death, perhaps it's appropriate that it be that expansive. But it's not entirely clear to me how the manifestation is occurring here, where on the one hand, all of this is within his domain. Um, perhaps it's just that how much power he can exercise within the things that are fall within his domain. Because obviously he needs back this helmet and he needs back this ruby. And it's just like, if you need back these, like what appear to be elaborate physical items, but yet you have dominion over everything, then I think that's an interesting idea. But perhaps it's the idea of while he legally perhaps has sovereignty and dominion over an expansive array of things that doesn't mean he actually has the power to exercise the authority of that dominion um, it may be that he's got just responsibilities associated with a very large swath of things but not necessarily the power to necessarily always have a firm grasp of that responsibility and authority right i, I guess here in this case if this is literally something that that he has power over. I think he might just be suggesting that if I'm imprisoned and enslaved here and I'm not actually doing my job, that eventually the ability of the people in hell, the souls in hell, to imagine themselves being someplace else, that will cease to function 
as Dream is imprisoned for, you know, presumably it takes longer than 80 years, but eventually. And so enslaving Dream, imprisoning Dream would in fact be counterproductive to, you know, Lucifer's own own you know, desires for, for power, his own position within the universe. I think that might be the explanation for the actual power here. But I also like your explanation that Dream's Domain, even though I'm I'm picking in it here, but the Dream's Domain really does exist outside of just the realm of 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 dream sleep, but of any time that we are imagining something, any time that we have an image in our mind that is not real, you know, an image in our mind that's not, say, a memory or something we're literally looking at right now, that the, those daydreams and and imaginations are also within his purview. I think we are going to see that expanded as we get into other stories. Uh, and I really like that explanation. And I think you make a good point, though, that there's not evidence that his being imprisoned for 80 years had any particular effect on what happened in hell, perhaps. Um, and so... Perhaps he is bluffing and they're not calling him on it, which would be very easily to do to be like, look, for 80 years you were imprisoned and we're no weaker for it. Um, we're not off put by that. So how about 80 more at least? And it could be that he very much is bluffing there, as you point out. Well, we've got one more page that we need to talk about before we get into our, our wrap up for this issue, which is that this issue concludes with uh, an explicitly labeled epilogue back on Earth in Arkham Asylum. John D's mother, that's that's Dr. Destiny, uh, has just died. And one of the asylum guards has a present for him. It's it's something that his mother wanted him to have. And it is a, a red stone, I guess, with a, with an eyeball carved into it. And this you know, is the hint for us, of course, that we know that next time Dream will be returning to Earth to get back his ruby or to try to get back his ruby at any rate. And we actually um, have seen this particular um, amulet before back in the very first issue of Sandman on page 16. Uh, it was uh, Burgess's right hand man had traded to a demon uh, Dream's helm to get this protective amulet so that Burgess would not be able to harm him. And it was then when Dee's mother uh, went ahead and left him and took the amulet that was protecting um, Sykes um, with him, caused him to explode. So this is some kind of a protective amulet that at the very least uh, seems to protect you from crazy old men using cats to make your head explode at range. Right. I think even just the the science of narratology tells us that the stakes have to keep increasing as the obstacles continue. So we know that getting this ruby back is going to have to have to be difficult for Dream, even now that he's got both the pouch and the helmet back. But we will uh, we'll have to wait until next issue to, to see how that is going to work out. But before we leave off this episode, we need to talk about the cover art, the, the title, and uh, we're each going to pick a favorite panel. Uh, this cover here, this Dave McKean cover is phenomenal. Um, it's got uh, the, the, the center image is uh, an image of Lucifer, but it is Lucifer as a, a demon rather than an angel. And I think that's really very interesting that there's a sort of like skeletal look to his to his face, you know, something's not quite right with the teeth. Uh, 
and you, we can see into his body and see uh, something that I guess looks kind of like a heart and maybe, you know, like a very large vein kind of, or artery rather, kind of jutting out of it. It's almost like an x-ray look behind the the uh, white-suited David Bowie uh, facade that is maybe kind of like an artificial glamour that he constructs around himself. Yeah, and it's unclear whether, you know, his heart has been torn from him or it's bleeding or if it's just shriveled and dark and the hair looks a lot to me like almost uh, writhing snakes it's a very kind of medusa kind of look of it serpentine looking face there's also this text that's superimposed over the the main image which i think is very cool i mean some of the the, the words are in 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 different sort of font sizes and uh, some of them are a little bit backwards or upside down they're in different colors so it's not easy to read this but all of this is from canto 34 of dante's inferno which is the very last section of that poem and the text is about judas iscariot who you know of course famously betrayed christ for 30 pieces of silver and he is the person who is imprisoned at the icy center of hell in dante's poem but also there and also then on this page or in the text that mckean has used are brutus and cassius who betrayed julius caesar and and all three of these names judas brutus and cassius appear here on the cover. And I actually kind of wondered if getting all of these names, Judas Iscariot, Brutus, and Cassius, is kind of Dave McKean's joke about the triumvirate in hell as it's experienced in Dante. We also have the fiery remnants of currently on fire bits of Dante's Inferno lining each side in the cubbies as opposed to having a collection of items. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen it not be kind of like a, a hodgepodge of things. It is all the same thing. It's all text of the divine divine comedy but at the same time the center image is almost kind of the most abstract of the images that we've had i think it's an absolutely beautiful cover i i spent a lot of time just kind of just kind of looking at it this is one i would definitely enjoy having a poster of uh, hanging up in my home well i think let's let's switch over to talking about the title now a hope in hell this one maybe is a a, a little clear a little on the nose but do you have any any other thoughts about it a hope in hell versus hopes in hell um I mean, the specific hope in hell perhaps is, uh, you know, how dream wins. He has, you know, specifically has hope at the end singular, uh, as a broad concept of how he wins. But also, uh, we talked about the risk that he, dream has decided to take on to go to hell to begin with. He has a hope for what he might get out of hell. The epilogue even gives us perhaps with, um, uh, John D getting the, um, amulet from his dead mother um, that might be presenting hope Lucifer at the end uh, pledging to eventually destroy dream that might be him hoping as well that might be him daydreaming about what he might do I think there are a lot of hopes going on here in addition to the literal hell so let's go ahead and talk about favorite panels there's a lot of really great ones to choose from in this comic so Glenn what was your favorite panel well, I think since you've you've given me the first crack at it here, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna exercise my uh, prerogative here, and I'm gonna take the uh, two page spread, the splash panel of the vasty fields of hell that are on uh, pages twelve and thirteen. Of course, I love landscape painting, and I especially love a fantastical landscape. This is something that always just brings me just great joy in life. Looking at art like this, but what I really love about it is the way that this assembly of demons does absolutely look like a Hieronymus Bosch painting 
painting that's been updated for 1989. Uh, and something that I think is very cool about this is that the artists have snuck into this painting uh, a number of pop culture references. These are mostly on the left page. Uh, but, you know, if you look closely at it, we actually have several figures that are from Dr. Seuss books. And in the bottom left is Jabba the Hutt from The Return of the Jedi. Um, and I think there are even some some others uh, that, that, are, that we can find in here. Uh, there's also on the, the right side of the page, there's just a very sad, uh, a very sad gorilla. There's uh, a type of, of lizard man. There's a real cool uh, demon, on, again, on the left side, who is um, a, a type of centaur, I, I, I guess, in the, in the sense of having a human upper body and a horse lower body. But the head actually looks like a bird and has kind of a plume. Uh, and I love the way that the, the demons actually get the main attention here, as opposed to the the conversation, the actual action that is happening between the four figures up on the, the top of this rock outcropping. Yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things going on in this two-page splash. And I really love um, the liberty that the artists took here um, to represent some things which we've seen before in other pop culture as you note and some things that are just so mysterious and it's just um but each being very distinct and different it doesn't feel like there's a lot of cut paste kind of repetition going on here it's there's a lot of different things um and i also wonder about the demons that are scurrying partway up the plateau whether they're trying to get a better view or whether they're trying to make themselves more important by being closer up, or perhaps they're just hard of hearing. Cause again, I don't know what's going on in terms of amplification the way that I do later when there's microphones. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Hell has its own rules of physics here. I think, well, well, Brent, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Uh, I was very tempted to go with the same splash panel for my favorite, but the one that I think I liked slightly better, um, just because of all the work that it's doing is on the bottom right hand corner of page 19, the very end of the, the duel of ideas between dream and, uh, uh, Karanzan. There's a lot that has to be done to sell that I am hope line will work. Again, there's a lot of cheese that might be associated with this, but the way that um, Sam Keith and Mike Dreamberg managed to pull things off with the expression on uh, Karanzan's face. Just this is the first time he is no longer smirking. He's no longer smiling. Both mouths are suddenly just kind of struck dumb and his head is kind of twisted the sound. He, he did not expect this move at all. And there's a lot of kind of fun in this. And there's a creature in the crowd who seems to have both himself looking dumbfounded by this, as well as the thing growing out of his head also looking dumbfounded. Um, also, I think it was smart to not depict hope. That, you know, anti-life gets depicted, supernovas and universes get depicted, um, but the idea of hope is not depicted at all. Yeah, this is what we would now call a, a mic drop moment, though though no mics are actually dropped in this scene. They're both solidly on their stands. But this, this is the way of showing us that the crowd is equally surprised by this move as Koranzan is himself. And, and also, of course, I think that they had been rooting for, for Koranzan and are, are disappointed in his uh, perhaps poor performance. And there's something else that I really love about uh, what's going on with the demons in the audience that their mouths are agape and such. But we also actually get uh, one kind of exclamation from uh, one of the demons, I guess, which is simply the word slurb, S-L-U-R-B. <laughs> I'm going to start using this word from now on. <laughs> yep. Slurb. 
Well, I think now that uh, I'm uh, adding uh, made up words to my vocabulary, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please go ahead and join us on claytemplemedia.com and let us know what you think of a Pluto planet versus non-planet as earlier Glenn just went ahead and adopted the controversy. Um, <laughs> uh, but additional, you know, what expressions like slurb do you think we should be bringing into our expressions to express when we're uh, gobsmacked or um, dumbfounded going forward? Well, next time we'll be reading issue five passengers. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>